Hello, friend. Thanks so much for downloading this podcast. And with all my heart, I hope you hear something that edifies, encourages, equip, enlightens, and then engages you in the marketplace of ideas. But before you go and before you listen, I want to take a quick moment and explain to you this month's truth tool. The book is called I Believe, A Concise Guide to the Essentials of the Christian Faith. You know, it's paramount as followers of Christ that we not only know what we believe, but why we believe it. So questions like heaven and hell, angels, the Trinity, all of these are foundational issues for believing Christians. But sometimes we don't fully understand what it is we believe about Christianity. So the book, I Believe, A Concise Guide to the Essentials of the Christian Faith is just that. It's concise and it's a wonderful guide to explain to you the cornerstones of who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. It's yours for a gift of any amount because In the Market with Janet Partial is a listener-supported broadcast. We stay on the air because you pray and give. So if you'd like this month's Truth Rule, just call 877-JANET-58. Ask for a copy of I Believe. That's 877-JANET-58. Or you can go online to InTheMarketWithJanetPartial.org. Scroll to the bottom of the page. There's the cover of the book. Give a gift of any amount. We'll send it to you as our way of saying thank you. While you're on that website, you might want to take a moment, scroll down just a little bit farther, and there's a description of what it means to be a partial partner. These are people who give at a level of their own choosing, and they give every month. They get the truth tool if they ask for it every single month, and they'll also get a newsletter, only people that do, that includes an audio portion that only goes to my partial partners. So if you want to be a partial partner or you're just interested in giving one time to get a copy of I Believe, 877-JANET-58 is the route to go, 877-JANET-58, or online at InTheMarketWithJanetPartial.org. I Believe, a great book for you to put in your backpack as you continue your Pilgrim's Progress. Now, please enjoy the podcast. Friends, this is Janet Parshall. Thanks so much for choosing to spend the next hour with us. Today's program is pre-recorded, so our phone lines are not open. But thanks so much for being with us, and enjoy the broadcast. Here are some of the news headlines we're watching. By the time the conference was over, the president won a pledge. So Americans worshiping government over God. An extremely next... rare safety move by a nation. 17 years the Palestinians and Israelis negotiated. For a long time, I thought that the Bible was inspired and inerrant, that there were no mistakes in the Bible. But as I engaged in historical research on the Bible, as I was getting my PhD in New Testament studies at Princeton Theological Seminary, I started finding mistakes in the Bible. And uh, this, this cut away at my assumptions that the Bible was inerrant. And then I started questioning other parts of my faith. Is Jesus really divine? Uh, is there really a trinity? And for me, it simply didn't make sense anymore. Yes, and unfortunately for a whole lot of other people, they likewise, just like Bart Erdman, whom you just heard say, no, just simply doesn't make any sense anymore. Welcome to In the Market with Janet Parshall. You heard the cacophony of that marketplace of ideas as we started our broadcast together, and I can pretty much guarantee you that as you walk through, and I do hope you're going through the marketplace of ideas, John Bunyan had it right, Christian and Faithful said they understood they didn't have any detour when they went to Vanity Fair, they needs must pass through. 
through, and so must you and I. And that's where the contending comes in, right, as it says in the book of Jude. But boy, when we start getting questioned about whether or not the Gospels are reliable, we turn into melted butter. Oh, no, we're told. They're contradictions. Oh, no, it's written by ignorant Bedouins. Oh, no, the author's four, five, six hundred years after Jesus Christ, full of mistakes. And by the way, why did they just pick those? What about Judas and Thomas? And the list goes on and on and on. And... As Dr. Paul Little told us years and years and years ago, know what you believe and why you believe it. So understanding why the Gospels can be trusted is huge. And it isn't, by the way, a topic relegated to academicians or scholars or people who are getting their Ph.D. in Bible theology. It's you and me, the living epistles, the ambassadors for Christ who are supposed to go out and be able to answer these questions. But honestly... God's really big on preparation. Don't think that's the case? Well, let me see now. Moses led sheep for 40 years before he led people. Paul goes to Saudi Arabia for three years before he starts his ministry. Jesus walks on the planet for 30 years before he has a three-year ministry. I'm thinking he's big on preparation. So I love to find good teachers who will do just that. They'll teach us. They'll prepare us. They'll equip us so we can go out and we're more able to give a reason for the hope that resides within us. So today our conversation is going to be wrapped around this question, can we trust the Gospels? That's our topic. This program is designed to help you think critically and biblically, and the two are not mutually exclusive. We're winging our way to the UK. I tell you what, we have so many good friends there. I am so touched that they would stay up late because I know where it is here in the shadow of the United States Capitol here in Washington, D.C. I know what the time is. So fast forward, just think how late it is in Cambridge right now where we find Dr. Peter Williams. But he stayed up to teach us, and we're most grateful for that. He is the principal of Tyndale House, Cambridge, one of the world's leading institutions for biblical research. Research. You and I get to audit this class this hour. I am thrilled beyond words. He was previously a senior lecturer in New Testament at the University of Aberdeen, my country of Scotland. He is in the chair of the International Greek New Testament Project and a member of the ESV Translation Oversight Committee. If your favorite translation is the ESV, Dr. Williams just might have had a little bit to do with that. So he joins us today because he's written a user-friendly book. Now, I give you all those accolades, and it would be really easy for you and I to step back and go, okay, uh, you know, you have to have five initials after your name before you can join into this conversation. Nothing this hour could be farther from the truth. So you come with your questions. Learn. Dig in. Test all things, examine, sift and weigh. That's what we want you to do. 877-548-3675, 877-548-3675. Dr. Williams, what an honor. Thank you, sir, for staying up late and for being with us. Great to be with you. Thank you very much. You start the book out by taking a look at non-Christian resources. That's a brilliant mm-hmm. place to start. Tell me why you did that. Well, I wanted to establish common ground with a lot of the readers who I thought wouldn't be Christians. And although I I, I think the Christian sources are the best, obviously, for learning about Jesus, there's something about the non-Christian sources. We know that they weren't part of the Christian, they couldn't be accused of being Christian propaganda. And so I thought that's a neutral place to try and start. And we learned so much from them. Now, a lot of people are going to know some of these individuals, and some are not going to know anything about them. Talk to us about Tacitus and what he has said. Well, he was someone who, uh, as a young boy, probably experienced the great fire of Rome in the year 64. And he actually gives us a description of that and how there were these uh, people who were named after Christ who uh, were 
actually blamed by the emperor for starting the fire and suffered in great numbers. Now, we think the Christians are being used as scapegoats. He doesn't like them at all, uh, but he describes what went on. And I think it gives us a sense of how far and fast Christianity spread, how hard it was being a Christian. And even the fact that uh, he talks about Christ having been put to death under Pontius Pilate in Judea all fits together with what we find in the New Testament. The other thing I think that's important, too, and if I may, let me call you Peter so we can really mm, just absolutely. enjoy each other's company on this. Thank you for that. If Tacitus writes about the fire in 64, and we believe that Jesus died in 33, this is 31 years later. If mm-hmm. you're looking for the authentication, a 31-year-later witness means this would have been recent history. So hearing about this Jesus of Judea, this Jesus of Nazareth, wouldn't be far-fetched at all. Most of us could remember somebody we learned about 31 years ago. Yes, and also Christianity has spread quite a long way. We're talking about 1,500 miles or so, um, and it's got to the capital, and there are large numbers of people who are devoted uh, to Christ. And, And the thought that lots of bits of the Christian story could be made up a long time later doesn't really explain how Christianity got started in the first place. I think you need the message there in order to explain how it spreads, And yet a lot of non-Christians, I think, have in their mind this idea that the message could have been made up hundreds of years later, and it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, By the way, let me digress for a moment, because you say this in the very beginning of the book, which I think is hugely important, and that is that this is really a matter of trust. Now, the music is playing, and I don't want to cut you short. So if I may, Peter, when we come back, let me digress for a moment before we talk about Pliny the Younger. And there's so much ground in this book. I love the way you wrote it. I love the chapters. I love the approach you take. But I want to go back to this question of trust, because for the skeptics, the cynic, the seeker that's listening right now, this issue of reading something you can trust is important. Back after this. Christians really believe? What do we stand for? Do we know the essentials of our faith? That's why I've chosen I Believe as this month's truth tool. Know what you believe and how to convey the truth of God's Word to a hurting culture. As for your copy of I Believe when you give a gift of any amount to In the Market, call 877-JANET-58, that's 877-JANET-58, or go to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. As somebody who's studied it, again and again, back to front. Is it fact? Is anything in there historical fact? Uh, Very little, probably. Um, I think one important thing to bear in mind is that ancient writers had a very different understanding of what fact or fiction was from from us today. Um, It wasn't written to be a factual account of the past. I don't think that's the way in which these biblical writers understood the past. Um, But as a historian of, of the Bible, I think there's very little that's factual. King David? No. Moses? No. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody said Jesus behind me. I don't think it, they were taking the Lord's name in vain. No, Jesus. Um, yeah. Most scholars would agree that he existed, yeah. 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 Uh, so, uh, 
a hodgepodge of writings by different writers, scribes at different times with different agendas. Absolutely, and, and a hodgepodge is like not doing it a great service. I mean, this is a very sophisticated collection of ancient literature. I mean, it's fantastic stuff. It really is. Mm. Lots of different genres, lots of different sorts of traditions that are, that are being adopted and adapted and then readapted um, by successive writers. These are very creative people that were producing these texts. It's, it's brilliant stuff. <laughs> brilliant stuff, except I just don't happen to believe a word of it, says the Bible scholar. Now, that made you retreat, didn't it? And you're thinking, well, how would I repudiate that? This woman is alleged to be a Bible scholar, and yet I believe in the historicity and the authority of what I read in the scriptures. That's why we're having this conversation this hour. The book is called Can We Trust the Gospels? It is written by Dr. Peter Williams, who is the principal of Tyndale House, Cambridge, one of the world's leading institutes for Bible research. Just, I know there's so much, Peter, you could say in response to that, but let me go back, because really my question that I posited before the break speaks in some respect to what we just heard, and that is, you write that faith is seen as non-rational belief, something not based on evidence. And then you turn that around and you say, but that's not what faith originally meant for Christians. Talk mm -hmm. to me about the linkage between faith and trust. Yes, well, I think what's happened in the last couple of hundred years is people have redefined the word faith. So it now just is a weird part of your brain that might do something unpredictable, and it's not really based on evidence. But if I were to talk about a brand that you trust, or a restaurant you trust, or a person you trust, all of those cases you trust things because of previous experience and evidence. And when God invites Abraham to trust him, he's already shown himself to Abraham. And I do think that you know, God gives us lots of evidence and invites us to extrapolate from that and say, look, um, given what I've seen so far, God is trustworthy. Um, and I think when we trust people, we've often found them to be trustworthy. And I think that we've got to remember that God's given us lots of evidence for the New Testament and for the, the, the entire Bible, in fact. And he's not asking us to trust um, with no ground for belief. Um, so even in the, when God tested Abraham, you know, to offer up his son, son Isaac, that was after he had seen God perform the amazing miracle of giving him Isaac. So I do think mm. that the, the place of evidence is very significant. And I also think that trust is a word we can speak to non-Christians about because they all exercise it. I mean, if you don't trust, you die. I mean, what, what are you going to eat? Someone could poison it. If you don't, if you don't look, look at the labels and believe that, you know, there isn't poison in there, how could we buy anything to, to eat? Yeah. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Let me, if I can, just in deference to time, because there's so much richness in your book, I'm going to skip over Josephus and Pliny the Younger and challenge my friends to know that there are these non-biblical sources that affirm and affirm and affirm. So I, I leave that to you when you read the book, because it's well worth your time. But I want to go into something that you said about that some might say that Christian sources would, just given the fact that they're Christian sources, be biased in nature. But you say the mere fact that a writer wants to prove something does not make the writer unreliable. So when we talk about the four Gospels, why are there four? Well, I think it's amazing that there are four, and it, it gives us this ability to uh, look at Jesus' life from different perspectives. I think it's part of God's grace to us, saying this is such an important event, uh, the, the moment when Christ is here on earth, that it needs to be seen from different angles. 
there's a level of corroboration that we have as, as there, there is some independence between the Gospels and yet they confirm each other. All of these different things. And, you know, we've got more uh, text about Jesus than we have about the Roman emperor of the time. I mean, this is amazing that we would have so, so much text about someone who came from an obscure place like Nazareth who wasn't part of the social elite. I mean, how on earth did that happen? It's amazing. Yeah. Well, and it harkens back to that scholar that we played when we came back, that she could say definitively <laughs> that there was no Moses and there was no David, but a little hard to argue that Jesus existed for the point that you just made, and that there is so much historicity that substantiates that. You say something else, and you said that the four Gospels weren't chosen as a result of political power, but rather they became accepted by early Christians as the best sources for information about Jesus's life. Talk to me about that, because some people, one of the, one of the skeptics' arguments is, well, there were many more, and it was just almost like a throwing of stones to decide which ones they'd keep and which ones they'd reject. You said, very interestingly, it's it's good that we have four. In fact, it's surprising that we have four. Why don't we have eight? Well, what we know is, as you have real $100 bills, you have fake $100 bills. And so after you get the four Gospels, we know that there are fake imitation Gospels. And we know uh, that they're fake. They don't have the same historical knowledge, they're much more distant in time, they're later, they're not as widely attested, and also because they actually depend on the four Gospels. I mean, each one of them, you can actually see ways in which they're leaning on, on, on the four. So, I, and in fact, they don't take the names of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because those names have already been taken. So it's interesting they have to go after different names, Thomas and Judas, and so on. So I, I would say the other Gospels are part of, if you like, their fan fiction, their people uh, trying to use the name of Jesus to spread the credibility of ideas. But the four Gospels are far earlier than the rest. And even the skeptic you had on at the beginning of the program, Bart Ehrman, he would say that. Yeah, exactly. Wow, so much in this marvelous book. I cannot recommend it to you strongly enough. And it asks the question and then gives this marvelously clear wonderfully concise, understandable answer to the question, can we trust the Gospels? If questions arise as we have our conversation with Dr. Peter Williams, please join us at Gospel of Judas is he says, well, wait a minute. What kind of God do you think this is? If you're talking about God as a loving father, he doesn't want his children's death. Uh, he wants them to live. And, he would, and they would quote to the other Christians, you know, Christ died for us so that we wouldn't have to die. He doesn't want us to imitate the death of Christ if we can help it. And, and why would we eat the body of Jesus and, and drink his blood as if we were cannibals? So whoever wrote the Gospel of Judas, in short, is, is, is challenging and protesting the way that many came to understand the central act of worship and the meaning of the death of Jesus. So when you're walking through the marketplace and you come up against a religious historian who teaches at Princeton and she 
Elaine Pagels makes a statement like that. How do you respond, particularly when her forte is not the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but the Gnostic Gospels, which is why she just quotes from Judas. Dr. Peter Williams is with us, and we're taking a look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and he asks the question in his book and then gives a marvelous answer. Can we trust the Gospels? And gives evidence after evidence after evidence. So if I may, Peter, let me just linger a bit. A couple of terms to help our friends, because we're talking to folks from Guam to the Cayman Islands, not kind the people who listen around the world on the internet. And they might say, well, wait a minute, you've talked about the four Gospels. Is that the same as the Gnostic Gospels? And if not, what are the Gnostic Gospels as opposed to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Well, in 1945, uh, there was a discovery made in Egypt of some old books. Uh, They're old from our perspective, but they're from about 300 years after the time of the New Testament. And some of them have the title um, Gospel in. And there have been a few discoveries since then where people are trying to say, look, these uh, Gospels should be put alongside the four Gospels. But actually, they are from much later. Uh, They weren't widely accepted in the early church. They don't have the same historical information. And in fact, you can tell, for instance, with the Gospel of Judas, that it's a secret Gospel. It's trying to say that it's the only Gospel. So you can't put it alongside the other Gospels. It's trying to say... There was only one disciple that Jesus told the truth to, and that's Judas. Uh, The Gospel of Thomas tells you that there's only one disciple that Jesus told the truth to, and that's Thomas. So in other words, these are mutually exclusive claims of uh, groups who are trying to get you to sign up for them. And uh, you can't put them alongside the four Gospels. They don't have the same evidence for them. So when we talk about the Gospel of Judas, we're referring to the betrayer Judas, are we not? That's right. So, I mean, this is, it's evidently leaning on the four gospels because it even says that he uh, explains when he he wrote it you know um, shortly <laughs> before the death and so on uh, and it's absolutely useless in terms of any knowledge of uh, the land um, the, the only two authentic names it has are jesus and judas uh, and it has a whole load of names from uh outer space, if you like, you know, Barbalo, Yonderbath, and, and names that aren't authentic for the time and place. Um, so it, it's, it, it's very much a made-up gospel. I mean, uh, read it and put it alongside the four gospels, you'll see a striking contrast. That's excellent, counsel. And if it were a court of law and this were trial proceedings, I would put the gospel of Judas in the category of what we call an adverse witness. Uh, for someone who decides to betray Jesus, I'm not sure that's where I'm going to for my definitive source, by the way. So. Yeah, I, I don't think we should be afraid of these things. I would, I'd encourage Christians read them because yes. when you read them, you see how phony they are. Couldn't agree more. Absolutely fascinating part of the book, and I never would have thought this if I were going to write a book on trying to prove the authority of the scriptures, but the question asked in the chapter is, did the gospel authors know their stuff? And so you start taking a look at the comparison of the four writers of the four gospels, and you look at the different aspects of the world in which they lived at the time. So for example, talk to my friends about the test of geography and how we can see this, this commonality, these threads that weave through all four of the gospels. So if you just flick open the pages of the Gospels, you'll find that there are places mentioned in each one of them. All four Gospels mention different places. And so you start asking, well, are these real places? Do they get them in the right ratio to each other, Um, the right traveling times? When they say Jesus went up or Jesus went down, do they get that right? And the answer is yes, they do. And of course, that implies something about the authors, because back in those days, before the Internet had been invented, getting 
geographical information about a country you didn't live in was actually, it's, it's no trivial thing. How do you know mm. about these little villages there are? Um, and, and yet the gospel writers get those right every time. They get the right places for collecting tax. They get the waters in the right place. They know the um, geography of Jerusalem really well. This is impressive stuff. And they also know the culture. They know what people are called. They know all sorts of things. And again, if someone was sitting in Egypt, Greece, Italy, Turkey, making up stories, they just wouldn't get this right. Well, and again, it's kind of a corroboration, is it not? If if they didn't sit down in the same room at the same time and say, let's all start writing now, but in fact these places, rightly identified, show up again and again and again in the Gospels, it'd be hard, you'd be hard-pressed to say that there wasn't an authenticity to that because they there's a universal affirmation of these bodies of water, as you noted. You also talk about the fact that they uh, recognize gardens. I mean, the list goes on of all sorts of things that they could say, the commonality, commonality in all four Gospels. Yeah, they all mention things that the other ones don't mention as well. So that's the impressive thing. So uh, it, it, it just all fits together. They can't have copied each other. Wow. This hour is flying by. We're halfway through already. The book is called Can We Trust the Gospels? It is written by Dr. Peter Williams, who is the principal of Tyndale House at Cambridge, one of the world's leading institutes for biblical research. I have information on our website, by the way, in the market with JanetParshall.org. Click on the box that says Program Details and Audio. It'll take you to the information page. You'll see Peter's handsome face, a link to Tyndale House Cambridge, and the book Can We Trust the Gospels? More after this. This is Janet Parshall, and I want to take a moment to remind you that today's program is pre-recorded, so our phone lines aren't open. But I sure do appreciate your spending the hour with us, and thanks so much, and enjoy the rest of the program. We can all safely say that society seems to be decaying before our eyes. On In the Market, we're tackling the issues head-on from a biblical perspective, so you'll know how to influence and occupy, as Scripture says. Become a partial partner today and support In the Market. As a benefit, you'll receive exclusive resources every week prepared just for you. Call 877-JANET-58 or go online to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. We think when we read the Bible that we're, we're obviously reading the words that Matthew wrote or that Paul wrote. Um, but the reality is we don't have the originals of Matthew or of Paul's letters or of any other book of the New Testament or of the Old Testament. What we have are copies of these books that were made uh, later, in many cases, uh, many, most cases, many centuries later. So uh, we, the New Testament was originally written in Greek, and at present we have something like 5,500 manuscripts in Greek of the New Testament, which is a lot for an ancient book. It's far more than any other ancient book. The problem is most of these copies are hundreds and hundreds of years after the originals, and all of them have differences in them. Uh, so that the scribes who were copying these manuscripts changed the text that they were copying, uh, sometimes by accident. I mean, sometimes they just made mistakes. They were sleepy or incompetent or whatever. But sometimes it looks like scribes actually thought the text should say something other than it did, and then they, so they would change the text. 
Hmm. Is that true? Really? Well, that's what Bart Erdman would say probably on some cable television show, because anytime you're a skeptic or a cynic or a heretic, you're going to get time on American television. But is that really what the record shows? The Codex, the Papyrus, I digress. Let me go back and reintroduce our guest to you. And if you missed one minute of this broadcast, I'm so glad you can podcast the whole thing. Go to InTheMarketWithJanetPartial.org. Left-hand side, you'll see the words Past Programs. Download the link and you can listen anytime you want, and you won't miss a single second of any broadcast anytime. Let me reintroduce our guest to you. Dr. Peter Williams joins us all the way from the UK, and I'm most grateful for that. He's the principal of Tyndale House Cambridge, one of the world's leading institutes for biblical research, previously a senior lecturer in New Testament at the University of Aberdeen. He is the chair of the International Greek New Testament Project and a member of the ESV Translation Oversight Committee. He joins us today because he's got a brand new book that I strongly recommend to you called Can We Trust the Gospels? Peter, I simply must ask you to respond what Bart Ehrman said, because you have not one but two chapters that basically address this. One, do we have Jesus's actual words? And two, has the text been changed? Yes, I think it's strange that nowadays we live in a copying culture. I mean, you're not hearing my voice directly. You're hearing my voice copied many times through many electronic means before it gets to you and everyone who's listening to your program is hearing copies of your voice and so our whole society depends on copying and it's easy to imagine that somehow in the past people were bad at this Uh, but in fact ancient societies had scribes they had people whose job it was to copy things and they normally copied very well, whatever they were copying. So I think uh, this idea that, that uh, Bart Ehrman comes out with, that because we only have copies, therefore they're unreliable, well, our society would fall apart if copying was in principle unreliable. All the technology we rely on uh, requires copying. So I'd say when we actually do measures of how well things have been transmitted, it's incredibly well. We've got great evidence for the New Testament, better than for any other ancient text. And we can get incredibly specific as we study uh, things. So I think you can wave a wand and try and argue that it's, it's all been messed up. But, but he can't maintain that in a specific way. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when it gets down to the detail, his case falls apart. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, he makes a couple of statements, and I'd like us to visit those. One is the idea that the texts were written really hundreds of years after the fact. Is that true? Well, I mean, he himself dates the, the four Gospels to the first century. So where he, he would say that the, the um, Gospels were written then. He then says, but the manuscripts were written lots later. But, but that doesn't really matter, because you can have a manuscript written hundreds of years later, which has um, good material from much earlier. So, I mean, many classical works, the first copy of them we have is from a thousand years after they were written. But it's still a good copy. With the Gospels, the gap between the Gospels and the earliest copies is getting smaller all the time. So skeptics uh, are running out of place to hide. They'll always, you know, try and claim that things have changed. But what we can say is, as over the last 500 years, people have found more and more manuscripts, actually, we're not finding we're having to change the text. Uh, We've got a very reliable text. 
Yeah, exactly. So let me go to the idea, and it's no mistake at all, I know that you have a bit of papyrus as the background in the front of the books. Talk to me about the libraries all over Europe, by the way, that have these bits of papyrus that begin to timestamp the writings of the gospel and why they are absolutely significant pieces of historical authentication. Yes, uh, if we roll back the clock a few hundred years, say to the time of the Reformation or people shortly after that, they didn't have any of these papyri which come out of the ground. Typically the papyri are found in southern Egypt where it's super dry and therefore they survive. And they come from the first few centuries of Christianity. And what's been really interesting is the reformers didn't, you know, people like Martin Luther didn't have copies of the New Testament from before the 12th century. We now have Um, complete copies from the 4th century and fragments from the 2nd and 3rd. And we are able to check what the reformers had, and actually what we're finding coming out of the ground is not much different. So in fact, that gives a validity to the fact that reformers trusted that we had good copying. So I would say that uh, these pyri are, are just a great part of the evidence for the New Testament. You know, Peter, if you go to Israel, and I've done that more times than I can count, and you visit the Museum of the Scroll, you see this Dead Sea Scroll from the book of Isaiah, and if Mm -hmm. I could understand Hebrew, from what I understand from Hebrew scholars is, I could open up my Bible, I could read Isaiah in English, and it would almost match jot and tittle what I've read on that scroll. So if that can happen for the book of Isaiah, why would I not think that it could not also happen in terms of accuracy for the four Gospels? Yes, and it has happened. I mean, we've just at, at Tinder House in Cambridge, we finished our own edition of the Greek New Testament, and we found as we went through the first 14 verses of John uh, that we had every single letter the same as Erasmus, who was 500 years before us, and our manuscripts are 900 years earlier than his. We didn't have to change anything from him. So in other words, um, there's huge accuracy in the transmission of the New Testament. Wow, amazing. You have a chapter entitled Undesigned Consequences. What are those? And tell me about it. Yeah, so undesigned coincidences. Coincidences, uh, It's a phrase that uh, a man came up with called John J. Blunt, who who used this as an argument for the reliability of the Gospels. And I suppose it's a bit like when you've got two witnesses to an event and you separate them, and they can't possibly know what the other one's saying— And you test them, and as they tell their stories, there are just very, very subtle agreements between their accounts, which they can't be putting in to try and make you believe the story, because they're so subtle, if you weren't watching carefully, you'd miss them. And so, actually, you get lots of these in the Gospels, where, for instance, at the feeding of the 5,000, Mark tells you lots of people are traveling around, but doesn't tell you why. And John tells you it's Passover time. Well, that would explain why people are traveling around, because people have to travel to get to Passover. So it's those sort of subtle agreements you find between the independent accounts in the Gospels all the time. And you said they happen again and again. So that takes us to the flip side of this, which is very often people who've not read the Gospels, but have started out with the presupposition that they're not legitimate, and they cannot be trusted. So one of the arguments raised is there are, in fact, contradictions. You talk about Mm -hmm. this in the book. Are there contradictions? Well, it depends what people are meaning by this. So I'd want to say everything's true, but Jesus, just as he spoke in parables, he also spoke in paradoxes. So he, for instance, says in John's Gospel, I didn't come to judge the world. He also says, for judgment, I came into the world. He says both. Now, that, I would say, is a paradox. I think uh, what it invites you to do is think more deeply about what he's saying. 
And if you want to play a sort of point-scoring game, you know, sceptic versus believer, you could say, ah, there's a contradiction. But really, in a fundamental sense, there's no, there aren't two statements that can't possibly be fitted together. And I think that's what people mean when they, they use this word contradiction. They don't just mean contradiction at the level of language. They're trying to talk about something deeper. And I don't think there are those deeper you know, contradictions in, in, in the Gospels. I think uh, you've got a lot of coherence there. So... I want to move people away from trying to score points. You know, we, we can all yeah, play yeah. that. And the person who asks the questions usually seems to win. And I'd want to say, let's be honest with the Gospels. Let's study them and look at what they're really saying. Yeah, excellent. I appreciate that so much. Let me go back, because you just talked about the Greek uh, New Testament. So if Jesus's language was Aramaic, you likewise address this in the book as well. Has anything been corrupted in terms of knowing the text of what Jesus himself said, because it goes from Aramaic to Greek? Uh, and I would say no. Um, firstly, translation is usually good. And I suppose it's a bit like, say, in, in the U.S., where you've got a lot of Spanish speakers as, as well as uh, English speakers. The thought that, I mean, there are so many people who know both. So the thought that something's going to get corrupted because of ignorance just doesn't make sense. Um, there were lots of people who knew Greek and knew Aramaic. Jesus has two disciples with purely Greek names, Andrew and Philip. So the idea that None of the disciples could have known Greek, or even that Jesus couldn't have spoken Greek. I, I think it's just wrong. I think, uh, and I present in the book quite a bit of evidence that um, Jesus um, would have known Greek as, as well as Aramaic. So I think that what we've got in the Gospels is a reliable record of his uh, teaching and hasn't been corrupted in translation. Hmm. It is a fabulous book, and it will waylay most of the arguments you have about whether or not the Gospels can be trusted. And if you know the answer, then the next time you are winsomely engaging someone who is seeking or is skeptical or cynical about the reliability of the Gospels, you're going to be better prepared. I really recommend this book, Can We Trust the Gospels, by Dr. Peter Williams. Again, you can learn more by going to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. Click on the box that says Program Details and Audio. Takes you over to the info page. You can learn more about the book. It's right there with the link. And also you can learn about Tyndale House, Cambridge. Back after this. I don't believe in the Bible. Yeah, I believe in the Bible. I think scientifically, the, the biblical story and God and everything doesn't really stand up. I do believe that the Bible is um, factual and that the events did happen. I think everything in the Bible really happened. Adam and Eve happened and uh, Moses and the uh, burning bush and I believe all of that. I believe in the, in the Bible in a warm and fuzzy way, but the devil is in the details. <laughs> <laughs> unpack that if you can. This is In the Market with Janet Parshall. We are visiting with Dr. Peter Williams. He is the author of Can We Trust the Gospels? It is a superb book. He is the principal of Tyndale House, Cambridge, one of the world's leading institu institutes for biblical research. I strongly recommend this to you because the kinds of arguments that you've heard from some of these quote-unquote scholars are the kinds you hear all the time. They're promulgated on American television. They're the ones that get the national interviews anytime you choose to be critical of Scripture or you question the validity of who Jesus was and his message, I pretty much can guarantee you, you will get airtime on national television. But then when you and I meet in the marketplace of ideas, are we prepared <clears throat> to answer the questions that arise? <clears throat> Excuse me. 
Let me go back, if I can, Peter, because you end in a very powerful way, which is you ask the question, who would make this up? When you look at what happened to the 12, with the exception of John, who, by the way, was in isolation, if you count his time at Patmos, these were people who ended up paying the ultimate price. You would Mm -hmm. be uh, quick to think you could recant, you could deny, you could uh, separate yourself. We saw that in Peter. It was the easy thing to do. It was the safe thing to do. So why have your name affixed to a book that could end up in some respects um, promulgating uh, further denigration of your name and having you go down in the annals of history as a liar and a fool? Yeah, I mean, it really is amazing. Uh, Not only do you have people paying such a high price as Christians, but also that the disciples can't make up the Old Testament and the historical place uh, that they're they're born in. And what's amazing is they come from this uh, absolutely amazing people group, uh, the Jews. Um, There they are, uh, and their leader has happened to die at Passover time, which is when you have the greatest celebration of the Jews' liberation. Um, You have so many things in the life of Jesus that fit together with the Old Testament scriptures, which are remarkable as national literature. And you have all these things that come together on the person of Jesus. And I just think, imagine trying to make it all up. I mean, my mind boggles as I try to imagine how it could all be done. So on that note, let me ask you about the question of miracles, because you put that in the book as well. You quote Carl Sagan, by the way, these extraordinary events require extraordinary evidence. A lot of people would say, listen, I can't possibly believe the New Testament. I can't possibly believe the Gospels in particular, because there are all these accounts of these miraculous things happening, and they can't be scientifically substantiated. Therefore, all of it must be mythological. Talk to me about that. Well, of course, there are loads of things that can't be proven scientifically, which we believe. For instance, I mean, I believe my mother loves me, but I can't prove that scientifically. And you can't even prove using science that science has a value. So there are lots of things in life you can't prove. And I'm not looking to prove old uh, miracles from long ago using science. But I'm trying to say what you've got with Jesus is you've got a, a pattern of converging evidence that this is an utterly remarkable person, and any alternative explanation to the one that the Gospels give is just going to be such hard work. So people say extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. That's not satisfactory because they haven't defined the word extraordinary. You see, I believe that many atheist beliefs are extraordinary. The idea that non-life has given rise to life, I find that extraordinary. Now, is it okay for me to ask my atheist friend and say, I don't want you just to show me that that could happen scientifically. I need you to show me with some extraordinary level of extra evidence that it's happened. And they would say, no, they just want to be able to show it in a normal way. Well, I'd say exactly the same for me. For them to ask me for a super amount of evidence is not fair. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, it does completely. So the ultimate miraculous event is Jesus's resurrection. Now, here's where it gets very interesting, because ultimately it isn't, as C.S. Lewis said, a leap of faith, but rather it's a step of faith. So how do I, to a skeptic, to a cynic, say, I believe in the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. I'm not going to be able to produce empirical data. What do I do? Well, I mean, it's, it's the simplest and it's the best explanation, because when you see Jesus as already having been accepted as Messiah by many people, dying at this time in this way, in a way which fits together with the Old Testament scriptures, this movement starting, and it's not just 
any old person. This is the same person who said to the world, he gave them the golden rule, do unto others what you'd have them do to you. He gave beautiful stories. Um, You have so many things happening with Jesus, and it's trying to explain how those could all arise with one person independently is very hard. So I would say, whereas some people say miracles spoil the beautiful pattern of science, I would say the miracles of the New Testament make a beautiful pattern around Jesus. They're not random things that spoil science. They actually um, make sense if Jesus is the one who makes sense of life. So to the person who's listening right now, Peter, who does not have a PhD, who is not someone who's attended Princeton or Harvard or Cambridge, for that matter, and yet they so desperately want to be able, through a grace narrative, to be able to share the truth of the Gospels, that they can, in fact, be trusted, where does someone start? Well, I think start by reading them. Uh, Again and again, reading the whole Bible is only about 75 hours long, uh, and we should know it well, um, and start studying it, studying it with people study the geography, get to know it. It's simply amazing. And you will find in the Bible the very best reasons to believe. (laughs) What a note to end on. Reasons to believe. I thank you, Peter, so very, very much for being with us. And again, just my personal endorsement of the book, I found it to be so clear, so concise, so usable, so understandable. So you want to be ready. We We are absolutely Uh, Well, we're the carriers of the message, are we not? We're in these perishable vessels, and yet we have been given this imperishable message. I don't get it. It's not the way I would do it. It's the way God does it, though. We're flawed. We're fractured. We fail. We stumble. And so if we could just learn how better to present that message, boy, I think that would be marvelous. So don't be afraid to go out into the marketplace, but do your homework. Can we trust the Gospels? Yes, exclamation point over and over and over again. Read the book be encouraged, be edified, and then go out. And I appreciate your being with us. Learn more at In the Market with JanetParshall.org. We are listener-supported radio, so let me thank you in advance for your financial gifts that keeps us going so conversations like the one we just had, the great one we just had with Dr. Williams, can keep going over there. You can learn how to give right there on the website at In the Market with JanetParshall.org. Thank you, friends. We'll see you next time.